Welcome to the third part of Climate Radio's Climate Solutions mini-series, where this week we're focusing on food. The solutions we're focusing on are agroecology and food sovereignty. What are they, you might ask, and what have they got to do with climate change? If you're unclear about the answers to those questions, and let's face it, rich world country negotiators at the UN Climate Talks in Paris might not be able to give you a straight answer, then make sure you are sitting comfortably as our story unfolds. Along the way, we'll touch on the climate benefits of moving back to pasture-fed meat and dairy, why we need a renaissance in enlightened agriculture, how traditional techniques are helping farmers deal with the impacts of climate change in poor countries, and how the global peasants' movement, La Via Campesina, is fighting back against the destructive onslaught of profit-driven large-scale agriculture. First of all, here's three of our four guests giving their definitions of sustainable food. Vicky Hurd, Acting Policy Director at Sustain. Colin Tudge, author of Good Food for Everyone Forever, a people's takeover of the world's food supply, and co-founder of the Campaign for Real Farming. And Dr Ian Fitzpatrick, the author of Global Justice Now's new report, from the roots up, how agroecology can feed Africa. Sustain defines sustainable food as food which is healthy for us and for the planet. Um, and the alliance is actually called the Alliance for Better Food and Farming. So we're looking at food that's good for health, good for animals, good for the environment, good for society, and is fair. Well, real farming is shorthand for enlightened agriculture. And enlightened agriculture is loosely but adequately defined as agriculture that is expressly designed to provide everybody in the world with good food forever without wrecking the rest of the world. Now that is eminently possible. And it has three elements to it. And the first is agroecology, which means that you treat farms as ecosystems and you treat agriculture as a whole as a positive member of the entire biosphere. So you basically apply ecological principles to farming. That's agroecology. The second great principle is food sovereignty, which is a, a concept that was first sort of given a name in the 1990s by a group called Via Campesina, the peasants' movement, of the global movement. And the idea of food sovereignty is that everybody should have control over their own food supply, which is a kind of common sense, humanitarian kind of idea. And the third component of enlightened agriculture is what many people are now calling economic democracy. And the basic elements of economic democracy, really, it's, it, it's, it's a mixed economy that we need, a mixture of free enterprise and public enterprise. But we also need to introduce a third element, which is that of community ownership and community enterprise. So whereas traditional mixed enterprise was government and private, now we should have government, private, and community. That's the first sort of big component of um, uh, economic democracy. The second is that all businesses should be conceived as social enterprises. And a social enterprise is one that, of course, is intended to sort of, it's not a charity, it's not supposed to lose money as it goes along, but its prime purpose is not to maximize money. Its prime purpose is to perform some function which is good for society 
and or is good for the biosphere as a whole. Again, that's the total opposite of what now prevails where the function of all businesses under neoliberalism is to maximize wealth as it were, come what may. And uh, the third element, I, I would say, of um, economic democracy, certainly we want private enterprise, but private enterprise is best when focused on small businesses, which, you know, small businesses conceived as social enterprises. They employ more people. They're less efficient, perhaps, in cash terms, but they're much more efficient in the way they use resources and the way they use sort of minute niches. And uh, there's a fourth element, which is that if you're going to invest your money in industry, and you should be investing it in small industries rather than in great big corporates, you should be investing it in uh, ones that are conceived as social enterprises. And in fact, the whole business of investing in businesses which have a real social purpose is called ethical investment or positive investment. Now, you put all those things together and you've got something that is very benign. You can all live with it. It's not sort of communist on the one hand. It's not kind of mega corporate on the other. It's human sized and it, it works. Demonstrably, it works. So that's the uh, so put these three things together, the agroecology, the food sovereignty and the economic democracy. And you've got enlightened agriculture. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Organic farming and sustainable agriculture and ecological farming and lots of other terms. Agroecology is very, very similar to those. It is basically all of those things. Uh, so it's the science of sustainable farming, but it's also a political and social movement to improve the food system. So it's about shifting the way our food system's controlled and the way land, seeds, markets and labor are controlled uh, by big business at the moment. So it's about shifting that in favor of small-scale farmers. So there will be all, all the same sorts of uh, principles as organic farming, so crop rotation and conserving water and energy practices, low inputs, using less energy in general, year-round crop covers and using green manures and all those sorts of things. Agroecology would be in favor of things like community seed banks uh, so that the community is more empowered to control seeds and that sort of thing. As food is such an important part of our existence... This programme is about many of its different aspects. But it's mainly about how we can change the way we produce our food so that it works with rather than against nature, helps us tackle climate change and helps us deal with the impacts of a changing climate. Here's Colin Tudge again to set the scene and explain why the industrial model of farming isn't working. Well, huge environmental destruction. Global warming, of course, is the big one, climate change. And the whole food production system the world over, including industrial agriculture, I believe accounts for about a third of that. And if you farm in ways that are known as agroecological, as opposed to you know the industrial ways which are designed to maximize wealth, the input of oil, for example, is the main thing, is far less. And the, the amount that you cultivate the land is far less. So that the contribution to global warming demonstrably is reduced by, well, possibly 20% of the whole. And the other way to reduce global warming for it is to increase the amount of carbon that you hold in the soil. And then you get what's called carbon sequestration. The way to do that is to focus on organic farming, the whole point of which is to increase the carbon content of the soil. And that's not done under the industrial system. The industrial system 
rapidly reduces the carbon content of the soil, decreasing the amount of sequestration that you get. In other words, the contribution of industrial agriculture to global warming is huge. But then in addition to that, and besides that, the loss of biodiversity is tremendous. I mean, half the species in the world, that's possibly 4 million out of a possible 8 million species, are considered to be in realistic danger of extinction right now. And the main cause of that, actually, is industrial agriculture. In addition to that, of course, forests are being wiped out, not just the rainforest that we hear about, but also the wonderful dry forest of Brazil, known as the Cerrado. And all ecosystems are being threatened, even including the deep oceans, are being threatened by, uh, by runoff from agriculture and by the pillaging of fish, in part to fuel agriculture, to feed agriculture. So the industrial role of industrial agriculture in absolutely wrecking the world in a, in a few decades is 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 huge and absolute. It's the biggest single cause of destruction. And of course, once we've zapped the natural world, well, we're all going to die. We've looked before on climate radio at the large contribution of the meat and dairy industry to global warming and climate change. Here's Vicky Hurd with a quick refresher before we consider how moving back to rearing animals on pasture could help mitigate these impacts. Well, the absolute outlier in terms of the food system is livestock. It's 14.5% of global greenhouse gas emissions are related to livestock farming. And so that is absolutely far away the biggest. But waste is obviously a big contributor. We waste a lot of food we don't need to. Um, and other, other foods that are, for instance, flown can be very high contributor in your diet. Um, but meat is the biggie. Meat and dairy. There are several ways in which meat and dairy are, are big contributors, one of which is they're hugely inefficient. So they actually convert calories from crops very inefficiently. Obviously, there's crops which we can't eat that they convert efficiently, like grass that we can't eat. So that's, that's fine, and we're very much in favour of good quality pasture-fed livestock products. But they also produce methane in their gut rumen, particularly the ruminants like cows and goats and sheep. And that methane is a very potent greenhouse gas. But there is also nitrous oxide from the system, from manure, and there's also huge greenhouse gases emitted when you convert grassland or forests to cropland and a lot of the cropland is for feeding animals so that is a factor which people often don't realize that actually it's the feed that creates the greenhouse gas emissions and that feed is very inefficiently used by the animals the meat and dairy system is hugely flawed i mean but this is quite a, a relatively recent phenomenon in the last few decades we've bred animals to be very fast growing very polluting systems and very cruel systems. So the animals are treated very badly in factory farm systems. They also produce a huge amount of manure and gas, you know, air pollution. So there's a lot wrong with factory farming. With one fell swoop, if we got rid of intense factory farming, we'd be sorting out a lot of problems within the food system. Well, I would say that all the arguments in favour of veganism and in favour of vegetarianism should be taken seriously because they all have they all carry some weight. But if you look at them all in the round, you find that actually they don't really stand up. And, uh, for example, it is said that if, you, if we didn't produce meat at all, if we, if we produced an all-plant all agriculture, that we would be able to feed many, many more people than we now do. 
And the argument for that is that, for example, if you feed a cow on a field of grass, uh, it will, well, no, sorry, if you put put a, a given field down to wheat and you grow it really well, you can get about roughly 10 times as much food energy, roughly 10 times as much um, protein as you would get if you put the same field down to grass and grazed a cow, although a cow is one of the best ways of converting grass. So, you know, with that kind of statistic, you say it's no contest. Of course, you know, the plant agriculture is the arable or horticulture must be better than livestock. However, and you could also say, look, at the moment we're feeding at least a third, possibly near a half of all the cereal we grow to cattle and pigs and sheep, not sheep, sorry, poultry. And that's a ridiculous thing to do. And I agree, it is a ridiculous thing to do. So let's cut out meat. Well, it's not as simple as that, actually. And if you look at, for example, a country like Britain, something like 70% of the land that we now consider to be agricultural is actually grassland, which should be grass and forestry, but that's a different story. But it's basically grassland. And the reason it's grassland is because it's, it can be very steep, or it can be quite wet, or it can be very rarely in this country too dry, but often too steep. And it's not the kind of place you would really want to grow arable crops. It's very hard and quite dangerous to try to grow arable crops on, 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 in this kind of territory. So it remains as grassland. And actually, in the world as a whole, something like two-thirds of all agricultural land is is basically grassland or or forest and grass mixed. And it's that because you would it's actually very difficult to use it for arable purposes or or, or even for horticulture, although you can do horticulture anywhere, actually, if, if you put enough into it. So the point is that if we didn't raise cattle and sheep in particular on this grassland, we would be writing off about two-thirds of the world's agricultural land. We wouldn't be using it at all, which looks a bit counterproductive. If you look at the farms them, themselves that are used for arable and, and horticulture, are used for plant-based agriculture, you find that all of them would w work better when they have animals integrated into the structure. And all plant agriculture is quite hard to sustain. Well, I mean, you can do it. People do do it, horticulture and so on. But actually, if you introduce animals because of their manure, because of the way they cultivate the ground, they dig it up, in other words, because of the way they eat the weeds and all the rest of it, it's actually much easier. You get a much more productive, balanced system. And in particular, it, on in farmland itself, I mean, where, where you're practicing arable and horticulture, introduce pigs and chickens. And the, the point about pigs, it, traditional use of pigs, was that they lived on leftovers. They lived on swill. And they also lived on crop surpluses, and you often have crop surpluses. And they lived basically they, they they lived on anything that human beings didn't want to eat. And at the same time, they dug up the ground and ate a lot of the parasites and so on and so on and so on. They were actually employed as cleaners up, and they still should and could have that role. And poultry much the same. So the fact of the matter is that even if we weren't actually trying to produce meat, we could easily raise a hell of a lot of cattle and sheep on the land that we can't cultivate very intensively, and pigs and uh, poultry on the farmland itself where we are growing crops and so on. And that would increase the efficiency of the whole. Now, of course, the fact of the matter is, if you produce 
livestock only in that kind of way with uh, cattle and sheep on the grass and pigs and poultry cleaning up the leftovers, you wouldn't produce as much meat as we do now. But do we need as much meat as we do now? I mean, I don't think you need to be a vegan and eat none at all. But if you look at all the great cuisines of the world, like, for example, Turkish, which is wonderful, the Lebanese, and uh, Mediterranean, in particular, you know, and Provençal, and uh, Chinese, and Indian, you find they all use meat. Not all of them use meat all the time, but they all use some meat. But they only use it sparingly. And they really only use it as a garnish and or for stock or very occasionally on, on, on feast days. Well, not necessarily that occasionally, but sort of once a week, once a month, twice a year on feast days. That's the only day that they have to eat it en masse. Now, this is great cooking. Great cooking uses meat sparingly. Now, we could easily produce enough meat in the world without stretching the ecosystems, and in fact by increasing the efficiency, if all we were trying to do was to support great cooking. And the only reason there's this huge strain on meat resources is because actually the whole thing is geared to hamburgers and all the rest of it. And the reason that happens is because that is the way to maximize wealth. As for the methane problem, very interesting now, it is true that cows generate, and, and sheep, ruminants in general, generate methane as they graze. Fine, but if you really manage the grazing, and there are ways of managing the grazing whereby you, you move the animals around the field in great clusters of the kind known as mobs, so you get mob grazing, and you graze the grass right down, and then you move the animals on, and you don't return the animals to the same bit of grazing for several weeks. If you do it that way, the net effect is that you increase the amount of carbon that gets into the soil. And the amount of carbon that gets into the soil by that kind of grazing is greater than the amount of carbon that is lost through methane by them exhaling. Yeah, there, there is a lot of conflicting studies around the benefits of pasture in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. Obviously, we know it's not just about greenhouse gas emissions, but there are studies showing that um, cattle and sheep are actually inefficient um, because they use a lot of land, a lot of water. But the reality is they are kinder systems. They allow the animals to live in ways which are more natural um, and they use crops that we can't eat so we would argue that um, those kind of systems are better overall for the environment but and the big but whether it's organic or not we need to be eating less so we go we, we're very much in favor of eating less and better meat and that the less bit is as important as the better if moving to pasture fed meat and dairy could have a positive impact on our climate what are the benefits of plant-based agroecology for the climate specifically and the wider environment more generally. Here's Dr Ian Fitzpatrick. Petroleum-based agriculture is a big part of global emissions. So up to 30% of global emissions are due to production, processing, transporting of food, and part of this is because of petroleum-based fertilisers and pesticides. Um, yeah, and, you know, agroecology can have uh, significant impacts on this. So, for example, it's been shown in a study published by FAO that uh, farms that converted to organic agriculture could reduce their emissions by up to 50%. And things like year-round crop cover, for example, allow for carbon sequestration. So farms that have year-round crop cover are more likely to sequester carbon year-round, which also has a significant impact on climate emissions. 
industrial farming is a high input, high output model. So you have, uh, you know, pile on the fertilizer, the pesticides, um, you know, no particular concern about how far this food needs to move to be sold, uh, you know, to start to access market uh, in terms of transporting food around. Um, and, and obviously the sort of tremendous wastes, you know, the sort of 30% waste that people talk about within that food system. And then you compare that to agroecology, which is essentially a low input system that tries to f get as much of those inputs, you know, the sort of uh, organic fertilizers and the, the seeds to be on site or locally available. It's very clear that there will be significant differences between the two systems in terms of emissions. You know, one's a high energy in and high energy out system and the other is a low energy in and uh, you know equivalent energy out system in terms of the um, comparison of yields. Agroecology has the incredible ability not only to like slow down but actually reverse these, car these carbon intensive trends. So effective rotational grazing of livestock on pasture actually develops soils. Okay that means it takes atmospheric carbon out of the air and puts it back in the ground. And not in the space of like hundreds of years, but in the space of like a year, two years, three years, four years, five years. This is an incredible, um, it's an incredible like tool that we need to start using really quickly in order to mitigate climate change as much as we possibly can. And also, it's producing food at the same time. So, you know, if, if you have a well-managed rotational pasture with sheep, for example, or cows, rather than being, though, though you're producing food whilst also producing a carbon sink which is an absolutely like, incredible asset, basically. Very, very broadly, agroecology, just as with um, other sustainable farming techniques, has many benefits in terms of increasing food yields. It's also been shown to increase agricultural biodiversity. So, for example, um, agroecological farms tend to have more uh, species on them than conventional farms, up to 30%, uh, one study shows, more than conventional farms. They've also been studies that show that agroecology improves the health and nutrition of communities that are involved in it and um, helps to reduce the gender gap. If we need to move to a different food system, how do we get there? Reform, revolution or renaissance? Colin Tudge. Several years ago, I, and others actually, just said the only way to deal with farming is to undertake uh, or create an agrarian renaissance. We have to rethink farming all over again from first principles. Because basically, you see, there are three ways in which you can bring about radical change, and we need radical change. And one is by reform, where step by step you ask the powers that be, whoever they are, you ask the government or Monsanto or Tesco or something, if they wouldn't mind changing their ways. That's the method of reform. It's far too slow for the present purposes, and it doesn't get you very far because as soon as you reach a, a genuine roadblock, as soon as you say, for example, well, actually we don't need Tesco at all, then of course that dialogue stops and the reform stops. So reform is not going to get us where we want to be. It can make a difference, it's worth it, but you know, it's not enough. The second way, of course, is revolution, where you have an enormous great fight and you go out and you seek a fight. Well, in some areas and in some small instances, this may well be necessary. Direct action is unfortunately often the only thing that will get you anywhere, but a huge scale revolution is, is certainly not, I would, well, not what I would advocate, certainly not what most people would want. And of course, the trouble with revolutions is they're hugely destructive and they never turn out the way you want them to. 
you make a huge mess and then some opportunist leaps in and takes over the reins and you're probably just as badly off as you were before. So revolution isn't the way either. But the way forward is, I think, renaissance. And renaissance obviously means rebirth, but what it means is that we recreate the kind of world we want in situ, as it were, despite the status quo. One thing we need in this country, above all, is more small mixed farms run along agroecological lines together with the markets that conserve small mixed farms which the big distribution systems can't do and that includes small-scale processes small-scale brewers and bakers and so on small-scale retailers and so on and so on the kind of thing we used to have in the past got to recreate that very difficult to do that because the government very much favors the complete opposite. It's not helping us to create the small farms and the small businesses that we need. Pays lip service now and again, but it's, it's actually making life very difficult. So we, we need to recreate the kind of world we want, but we're not going to get any help from the government, any serious help from the government, and we're going to find that the corporates who the government supports are very much against the kind of changes that we, what we need. So we need... As I say, this renaissance, we need to recreate ourselves, but we have to do it. I keep saying we, it's ordinary people, you know, ordinary Joes have got to make this renaissance happen, despite the status quo. I'm afraid in this context, one has to look upon the government as being, well, the enemy, frankly. I mean, they are, they are preventing good things from happening. But uh, the, the kind of things that can happen, communities can buy land, communities can run farms, that sometimes the communities themselves can actually run the farms. They go and do it. There are several examples around Britain of that happening. More sensibly, they also, they also employ farmers to run their farms the way they want them run. And often you get sort of local people work together with professionals in order to create the kind of farms that they want. That's one kind of thing. Local people can create markets, etc., etc., etc. I would like to see, in the fullness of time, a complete people's takeover of Britain's farmland, which is perfectly possible. Very simple calculations tell us that if everybody in the country forked out about £8,000, that would be enough money to buy all Britain's farmland at current prices, even though current prices are hugely inflated. Now, we can't all put our money in our back pockets and pull out £8,000, but £8,000 spread over a lifetime is the cost of a year at a university these days. And for that kind of money from all of us, we could actually do a complete takeover of all the land in the country, which would make a huge, huge difference. In fact, we don't need to buy it all because some of it is very well run already and some of it could very well stay in the hands of private landowners who own it already or other kind of institutions who own it already. So probably three or 4,000 would, would be enough to affect this complete switch from where we are to where we need to be. So all these things are elements of the Renaissance, and they're all possible. They can start to happen on, on a sort of village scale or a neighborhood scale. The, the question of whether the Renaissance is already well in train it's not well in train. I mean, the corporates are still winning. Okay, we hear every now and again of supermarkets losing money and closing down, but, but you know, they're still popping up all over the place. The government still favours that route. But the fight back is happening. There are more and more community enterprises. There are more and more small farmers setting up, running along agroecological lines, finding, creating local markets. So the movement is there. It's at the beginning.
but it's there. And if we put our weight behind it, I think we could see real change in about 10 years, or starting now, in fact. I would also say if we don't see real change in about 10 years, and if we are not ourselves making it happen, then we're in very, very deep trouble, actually. I think there's fantastic renaissance in local sustainable food movement you know every day I see something on on Twitter or on the web or you know people talk to me about amazing things like incredible edibles and sustainable food cities local food growing initiatives organic farmers doing well and you know they are doing well this year compared to last year so people are turning their back on junk food and when we've done surveys people are also beginning to turn their back on meat as something they expect to be cheap and available three times a day you know surveys are showing that it's um, people are beginning to eat less and better meat so I think people are doing it despite the system (laughs) rather than because the government is pushing it but I I think there's a lot of barriers to that happening because particularly people on low incomes very difficult for them to access good sustainable healthy fresh food Um, and I think the marketing budget of the big food industry is so vast that people are actually very confused. Here's one soil-level view of what's actually happening on the ground. Humphrey Lloyd runs a project called Edible Futures in Bristol. Edible Futures is an urban market gardening project. We're really looking to try and reinstate the historic market gardens that Bristol, Bristol once had and once produced, much of the mainly horticultural products like fruits and vegetables for the city. Um, so we produce currently mainly salad, and we sell salad through a scheme called Bristol Salad Drop. So that's a system a bit like a veg box scheme, but just for salad, where we drop off at various community centres and people come and pick it up. We've got bikes and trailers. We do have to use a van sometimes in the, in the height of summer when the harvests are really big, but yeah, the majority of our distribution we do through bikes. You know, which is one of the great things about doing an urban operation, like the distances are small, you know. We also supply veg to restaurants. You know, with veg and salad, you can literally whack up a polytunnel get a crop of salad out, sell it, make a bit of money, give someone a part-time job and really, like, start producing food. We benefit from volunteers and work shares. So the work share system is where people who want to get into growing, want to get into horticulture, um, they come and they give approximately a day a week and for that they can take away seasonal salad and vegetables. It's, it's a really good way for people to, do, to develop skills. And we've actually, just for the first time this year, we're actually taken an intern as well, which is great. So that's a kind of semi-paid position for someone who'll be trained up to become a professional grower. There is quite a thriving um, food movement developing in Bristol. We've got various different projects. There's Edward Futures, myself. There's um, Feed Bristol. Um, there's Women Hill City Farm. There's the Seven Project that has a community-supported agriculture scheme called Sims Hill. And probably lots of others that um, I'm not going to list for you now but um there, there is quite a lot going on what i do have to say though is that there's def- it definitely feels to me as a grower on the ground that there's there's less actual production than a lot of people suspect you know it's one of these situations where there are people trying to produce food in bristol and trying to get it out to bristol communities but still the majority of the work going into stuff around food seems to be at the kind of like policy and strategic level rather than people actually getting their hands dirty and growing food and personally as a grower, that's something I'd like to see um, shift a bit, whereby more people who are interested in these issues actually take on a small piece of land, whack up a polytunnel and start growing something. I definitely think, yeah, that there are enough like effective case studies out there. I think that the struggle now is just like replicating those as much as possible.
you know, for me, like working on the land is like a, is is an amazing, exciting um, change of lifestyle. It allows me to be outside. It allows me to be fit and healthy, and it earns a, a certain amount of money. It's a small amount of money, but it is a certain amount of money. Interestingly, a report I saw recently about um, job satisfaction actually ranked farmers as number eight in Britain in terms of how satisfied they said they were with their jobs out of over 260 different categories. Okay, and uh, horticulture was number four. That wasn't produced by any sort of like radical organisation, that was produced by the Tory Cabinet Office. So I do think there's a lot of truth in the fact that, you know, we live in this kind of like post-industrial economy in which there's a lot of people working on checkouts in offices, you know, the amount of time people spend on the internet is going through the roof. And a lot of people benefit sort of emotionally and from a sort of lifestyle satisfaction point of view from doing something a bit more grounded and a bit more earthy and that gives them a bit more day-to-day exercise. And working on the land is, is a great example of that. The flip side of it is it's very difficult to earn enough money to sustain yourself. And that's part of this much bigger socio-economic problem around food production. It's very hard even to be able to pay yourself minimum wage. It's a constant thing that people talk about and are trying to get around this thing that like none of us basically quite earn enough money you know but if if the kind of like policy and economic situation shifts a bit it will become a lot easier for us to to pay ourselves a living wage one of the great functions of agriculture worldwide is and always has been or at least for the last 10,000 years has been to employ people it provides good jobs and it provides some of the best jobs there are and this, all countries, until certainly until the, well into the even into the twentieth century, had a, a strong agrarian economy. A large proportion of the people working on the land, in some way or other, or working somewhere along the food chain. You can overdo this. I mean, in Rwanda, for example, at least until recently, something like ninety percent of people worked on the land. Well, ninety percent of the people working on the land is too many. The 10% that aren't farming is not enough to provide you with all the doctors and the engineers and the teachers and everybody else that you would like in a civilized society. But in this country, it's commonly accepted that only about 1% of the people, just over 1% of the, of, the, of the workforce, work on the land. Now, we can all agree that 90% of people on the land is too many, and I, but what we should also accept and acknowledge is that 1% is far too few. And yet the um, strategy of governments like ours, which are committed to sort of neoliberal industrial agriculture, is to reduce the labor force as far as possible. Trimming the labor force means sacking people, means creating unemployment. And for another, it is very, very dangerous indeed to have too few people working on the land. They're not do- they can't do the kind of things that you need in order to run farms on e- agroecological lines. So a big question for the whole world is what proportion of the people in any one country ought to be working on the land? And it differs from country to country depending on the nature of the country, depending on the history of the country and so on. So let's agree 90% is too many. Let's also agree 1% is too few. What is actually sensible? And I would say, this is top of the head, but you know it's got to start somewhere, that probably nowhere should have more than 50% of its people working on the land. But almost certainly no country should have fewer than 10% of its people working on the land. Now, if we say no more than 50%, this means that a country like India which probably has about 60 to 70% of people now working on the land, is 
probably got too many on the land, but 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 it's 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 not out of the way. It's probably got about the right number working on the land. And the last thing anybody, any outsider, ought to be trying to do, or any Indian ought to be trying to do, is to follow the Western uh, route in India and uh, reduce its farming force to sort of one or two percent, because that would put half a billion people or so out of work. And there aren't any other jobs, really. There are no other serious jobs that could employ that many people. So about 50% is probably about right, actually, for most of the countries in the world. But if we say the minimum is, is probably about 10%, which I would say on the basis, firstly, of common sense, and secondly, on the basis of talking to a lot of farmers and asking how many people they'd really like to have on the land, we can say that we probably need, let's say, 10 times as many people working on the land as we now have. I would say, using that kind of figure, again, that we could easily do with another million farmers right now. And we want young people because most of our present-day farmers are sort of coming up to pensionable age. Now, there ought to be a, a real strong movement in Britain to uh, recruit, campaign, train a, a million people to work on the land, which I'm sure a million people would very much like to do. Humphrey is also the treasurer of a new union for small-scale sustainable farmers in the UK called the Land Workers Alliance. Here he explains why he got involved, who the group represents and what they are demanding of the government. I wanted to see the development of an organisation that really represents the interests of sustainable food production and small-scale food producers, which are almost the same thing, you know. And so far in the UK, there really hasn't been an organisation like that. You know, we've got the NFU, the National Farmers' Union, which is essentially uh, an organisation that represents the interests of large landowners and corporate agribusiness. And so having a sort of like a counterweight to their voice to represent our interests, not only in the public perception and in public media, but also like in a really basic way just to DEFRA, just to be able to put policy demands to DEFRA, that felt to me very important. Okay, so we now have between three and 400 members. I think it's about 370 at the moment. To be a member, you have to be a land worker. So you have to be engaged in the production of either food, fuel or fibre. Um, so that largely means farmers or f- forestry and coppice workers. So far, we don't have any representatives from the from f- from fishing communities. That's something that we really need to change because um, obviously fishing communities are a significant and important part of our food production system. Most of our members at the moment are either arable or vegetable producers, with a smaller percentage being livestock. Yeah, we've recently released this document that contains four policy requests. The document's called Feeding the Future. And the, the requests are really trying to about make our food system a bit more food sovereign and about trying to develop sustainable agriculture in the UK. Our, f- our first one is requesting an, a comprehensive food policy based on food sovereignty. Now, we haven't had a, f- a comprehensive food policy in the UK since the Second World War. So, number one, comprehensive food policy based on food sovereignty. Number two, we want to see a cap of the common agricultural policy at £150,000 per farm. So what that's about is... Uh, The Common Agricultural Policy subsidises you for being a landowner. Approximately, you get 230 quid for owning one hectare of land. In Europe at the moment, the EU said that it was possible for individual nation states to cap the amount of money that each individual farmer or landowner got at £150,000. 
Now, the UK lobbied aggressively against this and decided not to go for it in the UK. And what we want to see DEFRA do is to implement that cap at £150,000 per farm and all money above that that is saved that we estimate will be approximately £200 million a year to go into supporting new entrants onto the land. So capping the cap, that's our second policy request. And number three is new entrant support for core production. So there's not much support at the moment for people actually buying the nuts and bolts stuff they need in order to get on the land and start producing food, like setting up their barns, paying the first year's rent on their land, buying their electric fencing, buying their stock plants or stock animals, putting up their barns. We want to see a significant part of, of DEFRA's budget going into that. And we also want to see greater access to the land. At the moment in the UK, we have one of the greatest uh, concentrations of land ownership in the entire world. And small farmers that make up, as I said earlier, over 71% of farmers in general in this country only have access to and use a quarter of the land. That's because a small amount of very powerful and rich landowners control the rest. Now, we want to see more land on the market for a start, because at the moment just buying land is very difficult, even if you've got a lot of money. And we want to see the land that is on the market be a bit more affordable, because there's agricultural land often going for £15,000 an acre in the UK at the moment, which is inaccessible to a lot of people. You know, if, if we think about the concept of an affordable home didn't even exist in this country till 10 years ago, and now every single development um, has to include affordable housing. We want to see a similar kind of prerogative applied to farming, whereby affordable farms are really like are really put on the agenda and potentially subsidised by the government if needs be. So, what kind of engagement have the Land Workers Alliance had with the Department for the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs? We have done a picket demonstration at their offices in London. Um, that was two years ago for the seventeenth of April, which is International Day of Peasant Struggle. We've produced this policy document that we've put to them. We've had various meetings, actually, with, with shadow representatives of DEFRA rather than with DEFRA themselves. We haven't yet managed to get a meeting with DEFRA, but we are trying to see that all the time. And, it, you know, we're a small but growing organisation, and the more that we grow and the more our political voice kind of gets out there, the, the more it will become possible to actually um, sit down with them and you know, apply a bit of leverage, basically. So the Department for the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs have not even agreed to a meeting with the movement that represents the interests of small-scale farmers who are producing food in climate and environment-friendly ways that we rapidly need to scale up. What's wrong with the government? And are any of the other political parties any better? There's a small amount of very powerful interests, mainly biotechnology companies, seed companies, large landowners large farmers, large supermarkets, these, pe- these people are effectively monopolising the amount of money that comes out of the food system and they want to keep it that way. The, the likes of Monsanto, for example, you know, the world's biggest seed company, definitely don't want to see farmers all over the world being able to save their own seeds because that allows them to not have to buy seeds off large seed companies but rather be self-reliant. That's obviously very threatening for a corporate organisation that needs to make its money and needs to sustain its shareholders out of selling seeds. Now, the same is the case for other sort of like farm inputs like, um, like fertilisers. You know, large-scale producer fertilisers, which are often the same as seed companies, Monsanto or DuPont being examples, they don't want to see people the world over, you know, producing their own microbial sprays, producing their own compost, like just using animal manure, because then they won't be reliant on buying MPK and other fertilisers off companies like Monsanto and DuPont. So, 
it's the politics of moneyed interest, basically. And they're, they're, there's a lot of powerful interests that don't want to see our food system become become democratic and become and see farmers be self-reliant. Mm. Well, the world as a whole right now is run by what's properly called an oligarchy. And the oligarchy consists, on the one hand, of the people who in some way or other generate the money, who are the corporates and the banks, plus uh, governments like Britain's, whose whole policy depends on supporting the corporates and the banks, who, because they are the people who are seen to generate so-called economic growth, and the third players are their chosen experts and intellectuals. Now, the people that run the world as a whole are also the people who run agriculture as a whole. So that's the answer to that question. The experts and intellectuals who are of most importance in this case are, on the one hand, economists who basically support the neoliberal uh, free market so-called economy which is about generating wealth in a very very competitive way that's taken to be the sort of the dogma and the ex the other form of expert and intellectual are the scientists now scientists ought to be dispassionate they ought to be finding out what's true that's their job in life one feels they ought to be on the side of humanity I mean you know that's their kind of social side in, in role in life in fact there are plenty of scientists like that, plenty of very, very good, very honest scientists around, but the ones that get chosen as experts and intellectuals and get to advise governments are the ones who go along with the neoliberal dogma, are the ones who support the sort of the, the oligarchic philosophy. So what we actually have is agriculture, not agriculture that is designed to provide good food for everybody without wrecking the West, but agriculture that is designed to make the maximum amount of money in the shortest amount of time in competition with everybody else according to the dogmas of the neoliberal economy. And unfortunately, the scientists who are called upon to advise governments and corporates are the ones who are prepared to bend science in ways that, that maximize wealth as opposed to providing us all with good food. When I say the government, I don't just mean the present so-called coalition. I mean, this the whole disease of, of, of treating agriculture just as a way of making money started in earnest. Well, it started in earnest actually about 2,000 years ago, but let's not go into the history. It really started being of global significance in about 1980, when neoliberalism became the norm. And one of the tragedies of Britain, or the world, is that all the parties have bought into neoliberalism. And under Blair and Brown, Labour considered it very responsible to espouse neoliberalism. And instead of arguing about socialism and the need to create societies that are benign and so on and so on, and create an agriculture that fitted in with that, instead of doing that, they tried to show that they could run the neoliberal economy as well as the Tories. So they became like the Tory party, and they still are, waste of time. The only party, I don't suppose I should be party political, but the only one that comes near to appreciating what the problems really are and how to tackle them is or are the Greens, who not only are rejecting the whole neoliberal, neoliberal idea and going back to sort of pre-neoliberal economies which basically are that of the mixed economy social democracy but also acknowledge that we have to take the biosphere seriously we have to stitch the biosphere into all our political thinking 
this is an exciting political time, okay? Like, we have at least three progressive parties in terms of, like, rural development in the UK at the moment. I, I would say those being the Green Party, the Scottish National Party and Clyde Cymru. Um, so, the, you know, the Green Party actually, you know, uses the term food sovereignty in its manifesto, you know, and they're very interested in sustainable agriculture and diverting cap funds into sustainable agriculture. Um, Clyde Cymru had the, maybe one of the most, like, progressive governments in the world on this. They've implemented the One Planet Living Index, which has allowed the development of certain agricultural communities like Lamas in um, Carmarthenshire. And the SNP, I'm not so familiar with the SNP's policies, but I know they're, they've also been uh, loads more support, supportive to small-scale producers in Scotland, which actually make up quite a, quite a big base of their support because it's a much more rural society than England. Meanwhile, in poor countries, there are many great examples of agroecology in action, helping small farmers produce food in ways that deal with the harsh impacts of a changing climate. Dr Ian Fitzpatrick, author of a new report for Global Justice Now, entitled From the Roots Up, How Agroecology Can Feed Africa Explains. It's been shown that farms with greater biodiversity, and organic farms have greater biodiversity, will be more likely to survive dramatic incidents uh, like floods and droughts. There's been many examples of this around the world. In China, there was an example of a drought in 2010, where farms that had sort of conventional uh, modern maize varieties lost all their crops, but farms that had sort of developed their own varieties through community breeding programs, their crops were able to survive. They had developed, essentially developed more drought and wind-resistant varieties of maize through uh, these programs called participatory plant breeding programs, which are sort of like um, the community of farmers and scientists working together to develop plant varieties. In flood scenarios, you have uh, examples of salt-tolerant varieties of, uh, of rice being developed in Bangladesh and in West Bengal. There are many examples of uh, the power of agroecology in adapting to, cl- to the impacts of uh, climate change. Uh, I think I think one of the other things I I, I like are the uh, agroecology schools. This uh, the idea that came from South America of campesino to campesino, the farmer to farmer learning models, and this recognition of how much farmers know about farming. That you know they're constantly involved in 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 a sort of scientific process of improving and learning and innovating, and it's allowing farmers to talk to each other and share this knowledge and really sort of kind of like giving power to farmers and uh, respect to farmers as producers of knowledge. Knowledge that is so important and you know agroecology encourages this with the farmer to farmer learning models and in Africa there are these I think there's something like four now agroecology schools in various countries like um, in Mozambique and in Zimbabwe that are supported by Via Campesina so these um, agroecology schools where farmers can train each other and train uh, train other people in agroecology techniques so this is another good example I think of um, agroecology in action the sort of science of sustainability from a climate change perspective, I think the regreening projects, this idea of, uh, of sort of reforestation through agroforestry methods, which is basically farming with the use of trees, sort of mixing trees and crops and increasing biodiversity on farm. There was this uh, a huge amount of land in Niger has been uh, re green so sort of uh, what was formerly desert, kind of turning into a forest, something like the size of Denmark, apparently. That sort of area of land has been re-greened, and I think it's 
agroecological techniques like that that can really help to mitigate the impacts of climate change, you know, stop the spread of desertification, for example, um, and the impact of uh, conventional farming methods and over over, um, deforestation and things like that. Something like the re-greening in Niger is a really good example of a, uh, a way of, um, of mitigating the impacts of climate change. It's a really positive example, I think. Innovative, climate-friendly and locally appropriate agroecology like this, and the right of people to determine how they produce their food, is under threat from corporate-driven agriculture. But the world's peasants, under the banner of La Via Campesina, are fighting back. Huge numbers, up to 70% um, of, uh, of farmers in Africa are sort of small-scale farmers. Many of them will be, will be using agroecology. So, so the numbers are huge. But, um, but uh, across the world, it's definitely, there's definitely a push for uh, this sort of industrial agriculture, agribusiness-led agriculture. And uh, governments are sort of caving into this. Uh, that There isn't a huge amount of support um, for small-scale farmers if they want to go ahead and do this. And ultimately, farmers will be doing whatever is, is, is easiest in, in many ways and more, more profitable. And um, businesses will take advantage of this. So, for example, businesses encourage governments to develop policies where um, they subsidize pesticides and fertilizers and seeds and sort of offer these packages to farmers. So in Malawi, for example, there's quite a famous case of this fertilizer subsidy program that uh, was you know, successful initially at increasing yields, but then in the long term, farmers become indebted and their soil becomes impoverished and their production, their sort of yields will drop. So... I mean, I can't, I can't think of many examples around the world of specific programs that protect farmers and encourage them to, to, to sort of switch into organic and, and agroecology uh, practices. And even sort of here in Britain, there's, there's not a great deal of that support for small-scale farmers, for organic farmers. So it, it's a bit of an uphill battle that. Now, there are these international, sort of going to the international arena, there are these these movements like Via Campesina, which represents something like 200 million peasants and farmers around the world. And there is sort of increasing discussion between Via Campesina and bodies like FAO and the United Nations and the, the Committee on uh, World Food Security. So there's dialogue and there's interest in agroecology. And I imagine eventually this will, and I hope that eventually this will feed into government policies that support and encourage farming of this kind. Via Campesina, of which we are, when I say we, the Land Workers Alliance, is a member. It's a giant organisation. You know, it's a giant trade. It's a bit like a cross between a trade union and a campaign group operating in over 70 countries. Um, it boasts over 200 million members, which, as far as I can tell from looking at the internet, actually makes it the world's largest organisation, which is quite something, really. And it's come out of nowhere, really. You know, it's formed in 1996 and is now, you know, boasts this incredibly large membership. And, you know, it sits at the EU, it sits at the UN. Um, and it's really put small farmer issues and sustainable farming, like, on the international political agenda, which it just wasn't up until until 15 years ago, until 20 years ago. So Via Campesina is it's an incredible organisation, really. You know, it's resisting violence against women. It's a very feminist organisation. It's working with often the poorest and most marginalised people who are, you know, farm labourers and farmers all across the world. And its membership is made up of those people. Yeah, it's, it's a really exciting, it's a really exciting uh, political development. And it's great to be a part of that. They've just put these issues on the map. They've at least made um, 
the interests of small small farmers like a a global political issue, which they you know as I said they just weren't. Um, and when you consider that small scale farmers actually make up a, you know approximately fifty percent of all humanity, that's really quite an astounding political achievement. You know, if you want to like take a few case case in point, um, you know the MST, the it means movement of people without land in Brazil who are a member of Via Campesina. Um, they've done incredible work in squatting land and giving it back to farmers. They've actually taken over 22 million hectares okay, of land that was, that was owned by large landowners and been left to go into disrepair. They've taken over that amount of land, cut it up and distributed it to small-scale producers so they can produce food in an ecological way for themselves, their families and their communities. You know, that is an absolutely astounding political achievement. Um, they're also very interested in agroecology and like, have been... Um, not only teaching farmers within Brazil, but also going around South America, teaching other farmers. The model is called Campesino a Campesino, which means farmer to farmer or peasant to peasant. Um, that's the kind of ethos of their education system. So they've been going around South America and within Brazil as well, teaching farmers how to do agroecology, how to do best practice agroecology. So, you know, that's a pretty, that's a pretty astounding achievement, really. Thanks for listening to Climate Radio. And thanks to Vicky Hurd. Colin Tudge, Dr Ian Fitzpatrick and Humphrey Lloyd for taking part and sharing their wisdom and knowledge with us. My name is Phil England and I'm going to leave you with Vicky Hurd of Sustain advocating for food sovereignty and agroecology to be made a centrepiece of the UN Climate Talks in Paris this December. Well, what we've got now is an opportunity to broaden the movement around climate change um, in the run-up and beyond the big climate negotiations in Paris in December, get people who care about good food to actually start saying for the, the right to good food, for everybody globally have the right to good food, we need really strong um, targets delivered at the Paris um, negotiations and proper support and financing of adaptation for farmers to produce what they need to produce. You know, we cannot any longer be ignoring the right to food in these negotiations.